All right, I'm going to get started because um, I'm told time is of the essence here at South by. Um, yeah, I, um, I, this is going to be a little different than a normal book reading. I'm not just going to sit here and read at you. I'm going to um, kind of run you through a uh, fast-paced but uh, hopefully interesting history of sex and the internet. Uh, I'm Samantha Cole. I am the author of How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex. Uh, I've been a journalist for more than 12 years, and for about half of that, uh, my focus has been on uh, tech, sexuality, gender, and the adult industry as my primary beat. Um, my book is a pretty wide-angle view of those things, and specifically how uh, sex and tech have developed together over the last 30 years. Uh, it begins with the earliest architects of the internet in the late 60s. Uh, moves into 90s porn webmasters, into topics like deepfakes and non-consensual image abuse. Um, it moves into the internet as we know it today. It covers a lot of ground, um, and I think most people will learn something new or at least meet some characters that maybe they hadn't uh, known before. Uh, I'm going to start by, um, I am going to read a little bit from the intro, um, because I think that's a pretty personal part of uh, the book itself. This will be a shortened version of the intro, so you can read the, the whole thing in the book. Some of my earliest experiences with writing creatively happened online on message boards. As a homeschooled teenager growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, I had the internet for a campus. On my message boards of choice, I gossiped about the week's intraforum drama with other members, debated scripture with middle-aged theologians, befriended queer atheists, shared poetry and photography and bottomless pages of writing with people I knew only by their screen names. To me, their preferred font also served as their voice. A pink comic sans sounded a lot different than a dark green Times New Roman. Writing was world building and identity shaping. I crafted a parallel life on the other side of a static charge monitor sitting in my parents' living room and later on a six pound white trimmed Dell laptop the undercurrent of all these conversations about religion or poetry or politics was romance. All my constant digital scribing turned into my most meaningful relationships, my first loves and heartaches. My friends and I had never met, but we would whisper together in private messages about who had crushes on whom. My eyes would scan and dart to the now online sidebar, which was a sea of usernames looking for theirs. We had proms and parties, asked each other to dance. Someone gave me a pixelated flower bouquet. Now in my 30s, I spend hours each day glued to Twitter and Meta's Instagram, two monopolies that devoured and then raised the GeoCities websites and bulletin boards I once considered my digital homes. Today's social media feeds are a mix of the worst people's unsolicited opinions about World War III, other people dunking on those people, and commands that I don't scroll past crowdfunding requests for someone's sick cat. These are buttressed with a grab bag of news headlines involving personal, national, and global horrors against the most marginalized of society, photos of a celebrity chinchilla, and 10-second video clips of bouncing asses and boobs on beaches and beds. All of this is received in kind of a blur, algorithmically selected in the order I'm most likely to engage with it. We're users now, not members. And the products we're using are each other, our fellow content creators. We pass around these little pixelated bouquets for the benefit of the companies running the platforms. When you peer under the surface of all this consumerism and chaos and back into the history of the internet, it becomes clear that the internet was built on sex, and sex has remained its through line, no matter how hard some people try to deny it. 
as demand for sex built the shopping cart, the browser cookie, ad revenue models, payment processors, and the dynamic web page. The desire to explore and share our sexuality constructed the internet piece by piece as we know it today. And then the technocratic billionaires betrayed the sexual for the sanitized and safe. We started labeling things safe for work and not safe for work, a binary that's telling of who we allowed to call the shots. Sexuality is either unsafe or safe under a pretense of labor, depending on whether a boss is cool with it. Capitalists built walls around the safe parts of the internet to appease investors, advertisers, banks, and zealots, and pushed everyone who didn't comply into the margins. Skip, skip, skip. It's not a different society or another species living and working online between the pixels. It's us. The internet has changed sexuality, love, porn, and our own erotic tastes in more ways than we'll ever fully realize. And sex has shaped the internet into what it is today, although those in power would prefer that it be erased from the internet altogether. This is a history of control, how we got it, grappled for it, lost it, and how we can learn from the past to get it back. And it's a history that's still being written as I type this. So that's um, a taste of what you're in for in the book and I guess also in this talk. So I'm gonna leave about 15 and 20 minutes to questions at the end, um, but as you can see, you can also scan this QR code, which I think some of you have already figured out. Um, and I'll check that at the end. I know some people are, including myself, sometimes shy about asking questions in a big audience, so. I thought that might be a fun way to get around that. Um, so please forgive the quality of these slides. Graphic design is not my passion. This is an ad from 1997 for an internet service provider called MCI. And I think it tells you just about all you need to know about the attitudes and the potential of the internet at the time. Pretty sick. <laughs> um, yeah, we can, we'll, we're about to see how that panned out. I think, spoiler alert, it didn't go as they thought it would. This is the photo of a original machine running the matchmaker bulletin board system in 1987. It was a Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 2 microcomputer. And there are a couple models, or modems, stacked on top of it. and. Uh, system administrator is on the top. Bulletin board systems were some of the earliest ways people connected through the internet. From very early on, the first BBS, which was a pre-World Wide Web technology that worked like message boards, uh, were all about sex, porn, sexual health resources, things like that. BBSs called Sleaznet, Throbnet, and Pleasure Dome were subscription-based and were for trading images scanned from porn magazines or uploaded by amateur pornographers of pictures of themselves. But it wasn't just about trading scans of Hustler. Uh, these systems actually provided valuable harm reduction services for users uh, seeking sexual health education. The AIDS Education Global Information Service, which started in the late 80s, uh, was then run by an ex-military trans nun named Sister Mary Elizabeth Clark. Uh, she ran that well into the 90s. Uh, it had millions of users over the course of a decade and provided access to AIDS health resources for people who otherwise couldn't access that information due to where they lived or 
maybe they were they weren't out about their status or about being gay or anything like that um, with their community, so they had to go online to reach those resources. Uh, it was also for serious relationship building. Uh, I had a conversation with Stacy Horn, who started Echo NYC BBS. Um, and that BBS brought together people from around New York to discuss anything and everything. Um, and because it was very local, people often met up in person um, and then maybe fell in love and uh, a few people got married and had kids through BBS. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say there are people who exist because of BBS. Uh, then you had multi-user domains, which were more like a social role-playing game. Uh, they offered real-time chat uh, in spaces where you could describe yourself with any appearance, gender, personality, sexual preference that you want. You could be you know, a, a dragon. Um, you could be a person. Like it, All it was was you typed it into a text box. Um, the first MUD was started by Roy Troopshaw and Richard Bartle in 1978. And these guys were huge nerds by their own definition. Uh, they built MUDs as a place to be their real selves and to experiment with being someone other than themselves. I actually got to talk to Richard for the book, um, and he told me that sex didn't factor into making the first MUD at all. <laughs> uh, he said, being computer scientists, we were social outcasts. None of us expected to get a romantic partner ever, so we resigned ourselves to the fact and never discussed it. We'd no more have hit on each other than we would have hit on our own siblings. We didn't know how to behave in the presence of people who were prospective romantic partners, but we were so outgunned that it wasn't worth it, and it wasn't worth the pain of having our hearts crushed. <laughs> but they created these spaces to kind of be their more authentic selves in a way that they felt like they couldn't in real life. And of course, people quickly used MUDs for romance. Uh, people met up and went on dates, just like they did in BBS. Um, and some of that, that really heavy element of role play tended to backfire. Uh, Richard told me a story of a young man in his mud who fell in love with this brilliant top-level admin named Sue. They wrote long love letters and professed their love to each other. Uh, they never met in person, though. Uh, she was very reclusive. Um, even though they went to the same computing conferences, they never saw each other. Uh, one day, she stopped responding to the messages, so he and his friends from the mud took a road trip to see her in person, unannounced. A woman answered the door, but it was not Sue. It was Sue's wife. As it turned out, Sue was actually a man named Steve who had just gone to jail for defrauding the Department of Transport. <laughs> I feel so bad for that guy. <laughs> um, and then you had Usenet, which was very similar to BBS. It was more decentralized, though. And the moderation, lingo, and concepts of consent that were uh, created in Usenet really helped shape the modern social networks that we use today. Uh, Gene Spafford, one of the first users on Usenet, once said in 1992 that Usenet is like a herd of performing elephants with diarrhea, massive, difficult to redirect, awe-inspiring, entertaining, and a source of mind-boggling amounts of excrement when you least expect it. It does not sound different from Twitter today. Uh, kink, in particular, thrived on Usenet. Some people might recall alt.sex.bondage, which is a news group devoted to BDSM. Richard Cadry wrote in Wired in 1994 that it's the willingness to ask dangerous questions that made ASB so interesting and vital. It's one of the few places on the net where you can find yourself genuinely surprised and illuminated about human desire each time you log on. Uh, my personal favorite Usenet thread started in 1997 with the title, 
sex while scuba diving? Question mark. <laughs> and people earnestly discussed the best ways to have sex underwater and kept it going for years with the most recent reply happening in 2020. Because you can see all this happening in Google Groups now. So most people have heard the phrase, the internet is for porn. Or you've probably been familiar with the concept that porn pushes innovation forward. Like porn created the VHS, which created the DVD player, and on and on and on. Uh, I knew this already kind of on that level, but um, until I started researching this book, I had no idea how deep that really went. So some of you might be familiar with this image already. This is Lena, the Playboy centerfold for the November 1972 issue. Uh, I have a copy of this issue with me. It's, if you want to see it, you can come um, check it out at the signing after. It's obviously it's from, it's a Playboy centerfold, so I'm not going to hold it up here. <laughs> um, it's actually, it's very tasteful. Um, but you know, that issue made its way into a Bell Labs computer science department shortly after it hit stands in 1972. And those guys were working on standardizing images for display and transmission on the web. And they needed a new image standard. And they scanned in that centerfold. They were like, oh, this is perfect. It's colorful. It's a human. You know, we're working with pictures of fruit baskets right now, so it was really boring. <laughs> it's like, yes, something finally interesting. Um, and then she, her face actually remained the standard for image testing and development for decades. Uh, it led to actually the creation of file types like the JPEG. And Elena didn't even know she was famous in these comp sci circles until she was invited to attend a conference in 1997, where she met all the engineers who had been staring at her face for their entire careers. Uh, it was probably a really trippy experience for her. Um, the the Lennon image standard was used really up until recently when several journals and institutions announced that they would outright ban submissions that featured Lena. Uh, Lena, along with other the test images of her time, were just not that useful today's advanced processing. And also using a Playboy nude, which was easily Googleable and full by students in comp sci class, uh, didn't quite communicate the message of inclusivity within computer science that they were going for recently. Uh, but she's still there. She's in the background of the history of the internet. Much of the technology we use today was developed to build an internet, internet devoted to sex and sex work. Uh, things like browser cookies, user tracking. Uh, they were all developed and improved upon by online dating entrepreneurs and porn webmasters uh, who wanted to keep track of who visited their sites so they could advertise more, more uh, effectively. Uh, affiliate marketing, which makes a lot of the internet run today, was popularized by porn sites who needed to make money from the thousands of people visiting their sites every day. Webcams and web conferencing software were popularized by the earliest generations of cam models who set up sites to sell you know, peeks into their bedroom and their real lives. Live streamers who streamed their lives 24-7 uh, paved the way for things like Twitch and TikTok. Tech that was mostly used for sexual intrigue which would be the live streaming webcam, we now use for business calls every day. The founder of Web Personals, who was one of the very first online dating websites, claimed to have invented the shopping cart uh, and the tech that gives webmasters the ability to track users from page to page within a website. Site subscriptions, members-only content, online credit card transactions, advertising models, the list goes on and on and on, and online sex tech pioneers are still crafting new ways to express themselves and capitalize on the internet's insatiable desires. 
So now we'll move on to the second half uh, of you know, how the internet changed sex, um, which I think one of the most powerful ways that the internet has changed sex is online dating. I'll give you a minute to absorb that interaction. It's not mine, it's from a very good um, Instagram account. Um, Online dating might be in the most obvious way that the internet has changed sex. Uh, the ability to kind of pull out your phone and use a pocket-sized computer with all the world's information inside of it uh, to browse potential mates from as near as a few feet away to the whole entire world away uh, marked a massive shift in how dating has always been done. The earliest pioneers into computer-enabled dating were way ahead of their time, before the internet. In the 1960s, the company Operation Match was run by a group of college friends, and it was one of the first times computers were used to play matchmaker in the US. I know it's really small and hard to read, but um, these are sections from a questionnaire that they sent out. It was a pamphlet. Um, it looks a lot like what you would have in a dating app now, where you're filling out like your preferences, what do you like, uh, what's your religious beliefs, things like that. Um, it, was 70, it was 75 questions, two parts. One for your own answers, and one where you're describing your potential mate. Uh, questions like, do you believe in a God that answers prayer? And very detailed scenarios about your approaches to things like unattractive blind dates. Uh, Operation Match claimed it would be compared by a computer with thousands of other respondents. You folded up the pamphlet, mailed it back, and Operation Match guys would convert it into punch cards on an IBM computer that they used between the hours of 2 and 4 a.m., which was the time that was the cheapest to rent that giant machine. Uh, they'd sort the cards by a few important criteria, like location, religion, age, height. <laughs> um, and the rest was basically random. Uh, the founder said in the documentary that uh, the matches were really only kind of thrown together um, based on those few things, and the rest of this didn't matter. <laughs> um, then they sent back out and people got their matches. And that kind of shows you that the, the real key to this, the magic of that, is you know, this narrowed selection, uh, the excuse to call up a stranger who consents to you know, you're calling them, um, and then the hours of conversation that they would have after where they tried to figure out what the computer saw in you two to match you, which was not real, <laughs> um, were the real keys to the success of these uh, systems. Everyone assumed that the computer knew something that they didn't. Uh, the true idea of online dating started with bulletin board systems like we talked about before with matchmaker.com, uh, which started as a BBS service, and then it actually started in, um, in Houston, and then expanded into San Antonio. Um, and then expanded again in 1987. It opened it up for franchising so that anyone who wanted to set up a local clone of Matchmaker, they could. One of the biggest ones had more than 4,000 members uh, and 20 boards. Matchmaker.com hit the World Wide Web in 1998 and had two million members, which is a lot of people in 1998 for the internet, um, with 31,000 newbies joining every single week, and eventually grew to four million by 2000. And then the search engine company Lycos acquired matchmaker.com in 2000 for $44.5 million. Again, a lot of money for the time. Uh, the online dating boom that happened next into the 2000s proved what people using BBS and MUDs already knew. Connections that were made virtually were no less powerful than in real life. And in some cases, they could be even stronger. Uh, sites like Match, eHarmony, and Plenty of Fish entered the field. And then uh, between 2000 and 2010, 18 new dating sites launched, 
most of them following this questionnaire model. Um, and then in the mid-aughts, the iPhone launch, which changed everything um, in 2000. You had these location-based mobile apps, Grindr and Scruff were some of the earliest. Uh, they paved the way for things like Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge. In 2005, only 44% of the people in the US felt that online dating was a good way to meet someone. And more than a quarter still felt that online dating was only for desperate people. Now, a majority of people don't feel strongly about online dating either way, which is perhaps a sign that internet-facilitated relationships are just part of life now. All right, now we'll move on to what we have all been waiting for, which is porn. This is a cover from Future Sex magazine in 1992. None of this is real, it's kind of a concept. Uh, I mean, they created these things to put on these models, but they don't do anything. <laughs> uh, it was kind of an idea of like what could happen in the future. Uh, the adult industry used to work very differently from how it operates today. Uh, Pre-internet, it was based on a studio system where you typically had to have an agent, uh, you had to know a producer or know a director, uh, be located physically in LA or San Fernando Valley, uh, to have access to the kinds of connections to get your own big break into porn. The production companies or the studios owned those rights to your images as well as all the videos that you shot with them. Uh, which means you know you got paid once, and then they said goodbye, or until they hired you again. Uh, the system also meant that buying porn required you to go find a store, go in, browse, buy or rent a tape or a magazine, and these shops were very male-dominated spaces. As you can imagine, it might be um, not something that like if you're a young woman interested in watching porn, maybe you're not headed into like the hole-in-the-wall type place. <laughs> Um, all of that kind of changed with the internet and with the inventions of the webcam and user-generated content platforms like clipping cam sites. This meant pretty, two pretty big things for our relationships to our own sexuality. Uh, one, like many other industries, the internet moved sex work into this realm of the creator economy, which meant things like retaining ownership of their own videos and images, vetting prospective scene partners through safer means, and working on their own terms, often without leaving home, all of that was handed back to the workers themselves. And you can kind of take OnlyFans as like the big example of this, of course. Um, the most successful earners on OnlyFans make about $6,000 a week. And top earners who work full time, plus some <laughs> at their craft, uh, make $136,500 per year on average. But you know, it should be noted that OnlyFans isn't uh, this easy money that most people kind of throw around the idea as. Um, most of the revenue comes from those top earners, and low-earning beginners make only about $100 per week from the same number of hours. All of that was accelerated during the pandemic. Uh, more people lost their jobs in 2020 than during the Great Depression. People flocked to online sex work as just a way to pay the bills from home. Uh, exact numbers vary, but almost half a million content creators were on OnlyFans last year. That's just the people making the porn. And then the site grew from 7.5 million total users, so including people buying the porn, in November 2019 to 85 million by December 2020. And the platform paid out $2 billion to creators globally that year alone. This also meant that more people could enter the industry 
now that the internet was part of this, uh, without the gatekeeping of, like I said, the producers, the directors, the agents who are all calling the shots, uh, anyone could break into porn and find their niche audience way beyond the straight, cisgendered, skinny, big-breasted, usually white women that dominated the look of early porn star. Seeing a lot of different body types and sexual expressions represented on screen as sexy drove the cultural ideas of what is considered hot. And this is very much ongoing. Beyond porn, internet transformed in-person in sex work, or what we would call escorting, as well. Being able to screen clients through ads on sites like Backpage or Redbook, which were two early classified ad websites where people would post uh, their services, meant that escorts had a strong layer of safety between them and the strangers attempting to buy their services. So expanding this idea beyond sex work, the internet changed sex in a very literal way when it came to the sex toy market. Um, this is uh, the website for the virtual sex machine, <laughs> which started uh, in development in 1996. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, people started really tinkering with this idea that the internet could connect sex toys to one another in real time. Uh, the internet, uh, the idea behind this particular thing, the virtual sex machine, was that there was a masturbation sleeve with a motor, which you can see under the screen, um, and that connected to your computer, and that would sync up to videos that the company also supplied. This setup cost $439.69, plus shipping and handling, for that machine, a digital interface, lube, <laughs> they sent you lube, cleaning solution, and a carrying case that looked like you're going to pull off a heist. Uh, this obviously did not take off. <laughs> Sorry to say. I know this is also hard to read, small text, um, but it's mostly for the photo. <laughs> this is an article from MSNBC in 1999 about Vivid Entertainment's long-distance sex suit. Uh, it was a black uh, neoprene leotard outfitted with 36 sensors and actuators over your entire body. Uh, someone controlling the suit through the internet could select from five settings to activate on different sections of the suit. So things like tickles and pinpricks and vibration and hot and cold. Um, and this also fit in nicely with Vivid's push for CD-ROMs. Uh, they were a porn company. Um, so the suit was meant to come with a disc that uh, interacted with the suit as well. The company spent $180,000 on development of this thing but they never got to sell it. Uh, they could not guarantee that the suit wouldn't kill somebody. <laughs> Getting approval from the FTC meant demonstrating the product wouldn't short out a pacemaker, which Vivid could not prove. And they abandoned the entire thing. Sad. That's the simulator, <laughs> a software and hardware setup that debuted in 2000. Uh, the full simulator package came with a USB transmitter, a vibrator, and a receiver, which you can kind of see on the top. Um, users would install an application on their computer and then attach the vibrator to the receiver. And then they'd register the device with a unique name on the simulator website and became like kind of a social network from there. Uh, anyone who knew that toy's name could control it with the website's control panel, which this is an illustration that they had of it on the website. I don't think it really looked exactly like this but you can get a sense of what they were going for. 
Um, Wired described the panel as a grown-up version of driving a toy for a baby. <laughs> the simulator is not far off from what we see today with modern vibrators that connect via Bluetooth and can sync accounts across distance. Uh, after a lot of the hype in the early 2000s and into the 2010s, a lot of momentum for teledigonics has actually slowed down, but as silly as these early attempts were, they paved the way for things like embodied virtual reality, uh, haptic systems, and sex toys that can be controlled over long distances. Uh, and then in a much bigger picture way, the internet really changed how everyone accessed sex toys in a similar way to how we access porn. Um, even things like regular old dildos and vibrators. Uh, Amazon launched its sexual wellness category in 2003 with condoms and lube at first, and then they expanded that into 6,000 items, including toys, by 2010. Instead of going to a shop in person for toys, which usually doubled as a porn store and literal hole in the wall for sexual services, you could just go online and do all this from home and have a dildo delivered in a discreet box. All right, now we get really get into the fun stuff. Um, for as much good as the internet has done for sexual expression, uh, understanding our own sexuality, our ability to connect to other people, there's a flip side to everything. So now we'll shift over to some of the less fun ways that the internet has changed sex and some of the very specifically internet era phenomena that have come out in the last 30 years. Uh, the internet gives like-minded people the opportunity to find each other, uh, form communities around things like kink and fetish and lots of other, lots of other stuff. Um, it gives that same opportunity to people who form communities around hate and bigotry. Um, I don't, people are maybe uh, familiar with the idea of incels. Um, incels, it's a short for involuntary celibate. Uh, it's a term that they've given themselves, this group has assigned themselves. Um, they're just, they're hateful people that find each other on online forums, like 8chan, Kiwi Farms, um, independent message boards like that. Uh, they're usually angry, often violent men who blame their rage on women's refusal to sleep with them. But um, if you haven't heard of incels before, you've definitely heard of their handiwork. The ideologies, the ideologies fostered and spread on incel forums have inspired multiple mass murders in the last decade. Incels are radicalized online. Uh, Dr. Lisa Segura, a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Portsmouth, told Laura Bates for her book, Men Who Hate Women, uh, that online communities and virtual platforms provide the means for these ideas to take shape, take hold, and spread. If people did hold these ideas and they didn't necessarily feel that they could talk about them in person, they've now found a new way. All right, let's get into deepfakes. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but these are not me. Um, they're very good, though. Uh, these were both made using an app that cost $6 a week. So I, I paid $6 once to do it. Um, and they use one video that the app provides, or you can upload your own, and one selfie of myself. Uh, this ease of use was something experts I spoke to when deepfakes were first invented feared the most. Uh, in late 2017, I was the first journalist to find and write about deepfakes. Uh, deepfakes followed a long tradition of using image editing software to paste women's faces onto porn performers' bodies and still images. Sometimes with the username, someone with the username deepfakes on Reddit was 
taking his machine learning skills a step farther by making these images move, which blew the minds of the people in these photoshopping groups. Um, he made Gal Gadot waving a flashlight around, which is what's in that one. Um, he made Taylor Swift sex tapes. It was you know every like major celebrity you can imagine. Um, and now his username is the word for any video um, face swap to look like someone else. And you know we now use it for things like audio as well. Uh, just to kind of give people a rundown who aren't familiar, a deepfake is a video that's been algorithmically created using generative adversarial networks or GANs. Um, these videos are made with machine learning algorithms using easily accessible materials and open source code. Uh, they first came out in 2007. Uh, you needed a data set of hundreds of high quality source images, so you couldn't just do this with like one selfie. When it first came out, you needed to take a clip of like Taylor Swift's interviews, turn them into still images, put that data set into the algorithm, and then what you would get out of it, once you combined it with usually a porn clip, uh, let's be real, uh, was you know the deep fake, the end result. And now you can do it like I just showed, with one photo and one video. Uh, almost immediately after uh, my first article about deepfakes came out, um, this is my, the first message I, had, I got from him after I reached out. Um, he said he's just a guy. Nobody knows who he is still, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, Almost immediately after that first article came out, uh, which doesn't even refer to deepfakes as a genre yet, it's just the guy's name, um, there was a lot of speculation about how these would be used to destabilize US politics, uh, spread disinformation, generally bring about nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> uh, none of it happened, but what did happen was people continued improving on deepfake algorithms in order to create more non-consensual porn. Most of the deepfakes that exist on the internet today are not the fun face swap kind, but the abusive, non-consensual kind. Uh, one of the last times I heard from Deepfakes, the, the user, I asked whether he was concerned that his hobby might someday be used to harm people. Uh, he said no. Any technology can be used to harm, was his reasoning. I don't think it's a bad thing for more average people to engage in machine learning research, was his response to that question. Uh, but the women affected by this feel and felt differently. When I showed a porn performer one of the early deepfakes, she questioned whether the maker considered the property rights of the people working hard to make a living in porn, only to have people steal and abuse their videos and put someone else's face on them. Another woman who is a minor YouTube celebrity, uh, she barely held back tears when I asked her about how she found her face in a deepfake. Uh, her middle school-aged uh, audience on YouTube stumbled into the video of what looked like her in explicit situations and wanted to know if it was really her. Deepfakes are a type of image-based abuse. The kind most people familiar are is called revenge porn. We don't really call it that nowadays because it's not really accurate to victims' experiences, but non-consensual intimate image abuse is another uniquely internet-era crime. Before the internet, uh, paparazzi and gossip magazines could spread intimate images without the subject permission of people like celebrities. Uh, but now anyone can do it, and these images are transmitted around a school, towns, or the world in minutes. Uh, you might be detecting a trend in the things I've outlined in the last section. The internet has brought about these new challenges, 
but they're challenges that are old social problems, particularly when it comes to people's rights to bodily autonomy and consent. Censorship of sexual speech through things like ill-advised anti-trafficking legislation, uh, combined with conservative campaigns to wipe porn from the internet entirely, hurt everyone. It's why sex workers fight to keep the internet and the websites they use to make a living online. And it's why sex educators battle censorship to get good, reliable information to young people about things like safe sex and abortion. And it's why sexual minorities and gender non-conforming people raise alarms that denying them rights will come around to everyone eventually. I'm generally pretty optimistic about our collective ability to steer the future of the internet towards something that's more free and open, expressive, and uncensored. Uh, but that won't happen without good people paying attention and speaking up and learning from the rich history of how sex changed the internet. And the internet changed sex is a big part of that. Now I'm going to open up questions because I think people usually have a lot of questions during this sort of talk. <laughs> um, I know some people have already submitted during the actual talk itself, but if you have a question, please come on up. Uh, yeah, go for it. <clears throat> what would you believe could happen to humanity if science gets to the point of where you are actually able to create a homo sapien easily, especially a homo sapien designed to do any job the creator so chooses or even program the homo sapien to not have any sexually contracted diseases or pregnancy, kind of like Blade Runner. <laughs> if that ever, okay. if science were to get it, what would you think would happen to humanity? Oh, that's a really big question. Um, I know that's something that like, I think uh, like people who are working on the question of like robot rights are asking that question right now. Um, I mean, we're in someone, I, I can kind of, I can probably combine this um, into something someone asked online, which was, you know, how does this, uh, how does AI basically impact um, our, our sexual relationship? So if you're combining an AI with a physical being, um, yeah, it's, that's something that's already kind of happening. Um, and I'm not just talking about like real dolls and sex dolls. It's something that's happening with chatbots. It's really big. Um, people kind of forming parasocial relationships with AI is something that we're already dealing with. Um, and I think it's, it's a tough thing to, to grapple with because what they're trying to do is fill a, a real need of loneliness and connection and fear of talking to other people in real life. Um, so yeah, I'm, I don't really know what would happen to society. I think science fiction writers are probably getting outpaced by what's going on right now. Um, so yeah, I don't really have a good answer to that question, but like it's a crazy future that we're kind of headed toward, I think. Even if we're not talking about like science creating human beings, which I think a lot more would come up before sex dolls, if we can get to that point. Um, but yeah. It's, like, it's definitely something people are actually thinking about now because it feels that close to what, what we're doing now. Go ahead. Hi. I write sex policy for TikTok, so this is like Perfect. my bread and butter, and I'm very excited. <laughs> but I guess I would wonder if there is like, and I imagine there's other people in the room that might do similar stuff, so are there ideas about things that we could be doing more proactively to think about the ways in which sex is presented on the internet and the ways in which we essentially control and police sex, or if you have any like ideas that you want to just throw out there, I would love to hear them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, um, 
I mean, I think a way to kind of start, and it's it's such a kind of catch twenty two. It's like a it's a double edged sword situation. But um, the the things that platforms like TikTok and others are doing to, and you see Meta does this because they completely don't allow sex on their platform at all. Um, you can't even show like a you can't advertise with too much shoulder skin. Um, it'll get rejected. Um, so I think thinking more critically and carefully about the ways that sex gets censored online. Um, you know, if you're trying to get rid of boobs on TikTok, you're also going to get rid of like a lot of people doing good sex education on TikTok. And that is important because they're not getting it in school. So we can kind of follow that, that line of thinking back to like how do they get good sex education that's not from a platform <laughs> and not from, um, you know, private companies that are gamifying your attention. Um, I think that formula is bad from the start. So I don't know. I'm always preaching the idea of like better sex ed in public schools. And, um, you know, that's a really scary topic right now because that's not something um, really vocal minorities support is, you know, being able to talk about your sexuality, talk about gender in school in a safe place. They learn about it on TikTok. Um, so, yeah, I think I don't know if that answers your question. My idea is like better public sex ed. <laughs> And that's not really something that like TikTok can do on its own. Okay, well then maybe I need to talk to you later. <laughs> hey, go for it. Um, so I've been admiring that luscious, lovely peach that you featured at the beginning and end of your presentation. I fought hard to get this peach on this cover. They were like, that's too sexy. And I was like, you guys are weird. Well, and so that, that's no shade my, to my publisher. That's my question. You know, my question is if you have any insight into, you know, the sort of emoji yeah. sex, you know, emoji for sexual communication. Um, yeah. You know, I'm a urologist, um, and uh, the use of the eggplant as sort of this, like, phallic signifier um, you know, cracks me and my colleagues up because the eggplant deformity is the formal name for what a penis looks like after it's been fractured. Um, and so... Today I fucking learned. You know, Thank you. <laughs> really curious to know how this developed and how it's being used to you know, sort of communicate around uh, sex in spaces where that discourse is disallowed. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, this, again, kind of goes back to censorship. A lot of the problems that we have currently with the internet and sexuality go back to censorship. Um, so people started using emojis and things like that because it's, like, fun and cute, obviously. Um, but a part of it was also you, you, you're banned from Facebook if you say, you know, if you, like, talk about, like, sex or you say, like, ass or something. Like, it's, I mean, it's all a workaround for... Um, actually talking openly about sex. Um, so right now what you're seeing on like TikTok and Instagram reels and things like that is people will spell sex, S-E-G-G, um, which I think is so funny, uh, to get around these algorithms that are hunting down people who are actually talking about sex. Um, and, you know, there are lots of examples of people doing that. So I think it's one of those kind of, like, um, like language development things where, like, we're, we're changing the way we talk about sex in real life because of the algorithms and the censorship that's happening on the Internet. And I think that's a very interesting... Um, I would read a book by, like, a linguist about that. Um, but, yeah, and, like, with the peach, I, I really wanted the peach because, um, obviously, 
you, it's a ch like you get it when you see it. You know what that is. Um, but the peach and eggplants, and I think like the water droplet one. Um, a lot of these are are banned on like it'll it can get you banned from Instagram or Facebook or um, Venmo is a really big one. Like if you um, if you use some of these on Venmo too many times or like you're just unlucky enough to get caught in the algorithm, you can get your account taken away because you used an emoji, um, which I think is really dangerous. I think you're con at that point you're controlling how people can give each other money. Um, sex workers have a really hard time with Venmo because it's extremely unfriendly to sex work. Um, so, and this all goes back to, <laughs> this could be a whole other talk, but like it goes back to banking and financial institutions um, considering sex and sex work high risk. Uh, so they don't want people paying each other or trying to meet up through platforms that they have exposure to. So um, that's my long answer to, you know, I, um, I think the, the emoji usage is so interesting and like it's something that platforms called onto and then started cracking down on. So it's like, what's gonna be the next emoji that signifies like an ass? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure they're, I'm not young enough to know. I'm sure, uh, ask a 17-year-old and they would know. <laughs> yeah, I hope that answered your question. That was really long-winded. <laughs> Hi. Hi. How do you feel about uh, uh, people creating relationship uh, with um, uh, chatbots or AI? Yeah. The points of maybe experiencing sex with them. In particular, people that maybe are cut out of a normal sex life because they are disabled mm -hmm. uh, or they are shut in or had uh, some kind yeah. of trauma. Do you think it's something good, something bad? It should be regulated. I, I would like to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is something I recently uh, wrote about. Um, I'm sure by now people have heard of the app Replica. Um, it's an AI, like we were talking about before, it's a really pretty good AI um, chatbot that uh, it started as like a friend, you know, that, that was kind of how they marketed it. And then they started marketing it as like your girlfriend. And it was always your girlfriend. Um, and then, um, you know, it started being like, oh, people really like this and they want to do the role play and the romantic stuff. So now we're going to market it as like, uh, sexy selfies they'll send you is what they called it um so it was like you can role play sex with the thing um and people really have people had and still and still have a very strong relationship and connection to that type of app um and to replica in particular um because it's good <laughs> and it does it lets people who have you know like depression ptsd things like that experiment in a safe way um, where you can kind of say, you know, within reason, you can kind of say what you're thinking or what you're feeling and see what another person, how they would respond. Um, so I th I'm, again, I'm, I already disclosed I'm pretty much an optimist about technology to a point. Um, so I think it can be really good. It can be healing for people. Um, but I think when you're only relying on that, it can get really scary and it can go wrong. Um, and I think one of the ways we saw it go wrong recently was with Replica. Um, they decided that the sex stuff was too much. They weren't gonna do it anymore. The company was like, we're pulling the plug on the sex stuff. Sorry guys. And people lost it. People lost their minds a little bit um, because this was a real relationship that they had created with this thing. Um, 
they felt like they were being dumped. They felt like they were being abandoned. People who already had abandonment issues were like, I'm being abandoned by a chatbot. This is really bad for my mental health. Um, they were in the communities and like subreddits and um, they were posting like suicide hotline information for people who were like, my replica hates me now. Um, so again, I think when you're relying a lot on one company, one app to fill a need that is more social, um, that could be filled by like support, community support in real life, or you know have that person talk to a real person um, and get help that way. I think that's when it gets really dangerous. But I'm I'm for it, honestly. Like as a concept, I think it's interesting and kind of cool. Do you think they should be what? Accountable. Um. Probably. I mean, they should at least get their money back. <laughs> Replica costs like $80 a year. Um, so yeah, I, I think they should be held accountable. I think that's why like we write stories about them and people feel seen by that kind of thing. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Hi. Um, first of all, thanks for the history. Uh, I thought it was really nice to see. Um, I have a question because I'm building an AI-based uh, sexual health program for a man, actually. Cool. And I'm focusing a lot on, I'm a psychologist myself and a software developer, and I'm focusing a lot on what, you know, porn does to our brain in general. And I'm not saying porn is bad at all, but in fact, we can see that, you know, repeated exposure reduces the amount of dopamine receptors in our brain and basically makes us experience, you know, simple pleasures in life less. So... My way is just like, you know, I want to promote like a moderated use. And what kind of technologies do you see that are currently, you know, evolving or developing in this field to work towards a moderated use maybe? Yeah, that's a really good um, question. And what you're working on sounds really interesting. So give me your information later. Um, but yeah, I, um, I think you're totally right that like when people get a relationship with porn that becomes unhealthy that can immediately become like um, really dysfunctional um, and I think that's pretty much with anything um, well it's it's not with any it's not with literally anything but like it's with a lot of things um, where you know you're using something that's meant to be a fantasy it's meant to be entertainment um, and people take it as uh, a prescription or they're solving some other need in themselves with this thing that gives them like good feelings. Um, so yeah, again, I like I think I know a lot of the the research into like sex addiction and porn addiction, which are kind of they're up for debate right now whether or not that's even like a, a diagnosable thing. Um, but a lot of the researchers who are saying you know we need to take a more nuanced approach on this. Uh, are looking at other factors in someone's life or in like in a trend of people who are addicted, say they're reported being addicted. Um, what's going on with them outside of that? Are they are they depressed? Are they isolated? Are they not getting like community care? Are they um, ashamed? A lot of it's shame. A lot of it's really deeply shame based. Um, so as far as like new technologies to kind of solve around this or like to moderate, um, it's hard because it's again like the like these websites and these companies want you to be on their site for as long as possible. Um, and that's the same, that's the case with like Instagram, <laughs> like a very family friendly kind of thing. Um, but like Pornhub wants you to be on Pornhub for as long as they can because that's where the advertising is. Um, and I think that model of 
the internet has been really toxic for the entire ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I'm. That's where I'm kind of. Uh, and speaking to tech audiences is funny because I'm like the advertising models are bad and they suck, but I'm also a journalist, so like I've experienced it directly. Um, but yeah, it's that whole kind of idea of let's keep you here, whether you feel good about it or not. I think can be really bad. Maybe that's what we need to kind of address as a business model. It's, that's a bigger problem than <laughs> maybe we can tackle in this room today. Um, yeah, what's up? Hi, um, so I'm a sexuality educator, author, coach, et cetera, cool. and I have, I have felt hobbled so many times by tech censorship over the years in the yeah. development of um, bringing my work out. Like, I, I, yeah, having dedicated my whole life to try to advance how we approach sexuality yeah. in our societies, and feel that there's just this constant censorship and deactivation of accounts and blocked of ads and you know warning of this and removal of content, et cetera. Meanwhile, other things that do make it through yep. that seem to maintain a status quo of you know a way of objectification, et cetera, that that does get amplified, like. How did we get here, and is there? Do you see a, a path forward that, like, with the tech companies, that can allow for people in my industry who are trying to advance things yeah. to get through? While yeah, I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's it is incredibly. It's frustrating to see. I'm sure it's frustrating in the industry itself um, to try to work around these systems that want you to. Um, keep everything so safe <laughs> for literal children that you can't even reference like real like sexuality. Um, so yeah, I mean, as far as how we got here, um, I think this is a battle that kind of started before the internet. Um, you know, it was a battle that was, again, it was happening in advertising. Um, it would, uh, like women's groups would protest like the use of like bands showing racy album art. Um, and then, like, they would have to change their art. Um, so it all kind of, again, it goes down to financial institutions. The banks are a big part of this. Um, and behind that, even when you kind of um, pull back the, the cover on that, too, um, is, like, super conservative, right-wing extremist views about sex and sexuality and gender. Um, you know, they want to call everything trafficking because then they can get porn off the internet completely and they can say, we did it, we solved trafficking. It's like, you, you did absolutely the opposite. Um, pushed things into the margins and made it people like yourself, harder to advertise, harder to get exposed. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the very short answer of how we got here is um, these kind of, these pushes toward very anti-sex anti-body um, autonomy, anti-education goes back before the internet started. And then once the internet started, it was this explosion of like potential for more of that. Um, and then those groups kind of amped up. And then you have legislation like uh, FOSTA-SESTA, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, that's a um, sex trafficking legislation that backfired completely. It, it banned the uh, talking about anything about sex in the realm of like, in case you want to meet up, that you can't talk about like sexuality online in a lot of ways because of FOSTA-SESTA. Um, 
and that just pushed actual trafficking to the margins. So um, things like that, I think, are a big part of this. Um, there was a lot of pushback for FOSTA, but obviously it still passed. So yeah, things like that are what we have to watch out for in the future. Yeah. Yes, hi. Um, so I have a question actually on sex and politics. So obviously we're saying that sex has impacted internet culture a lot. So how do you think um, within internet culture it's impacted politics and voting and things like that? I actually work for a nonprofit that's focused on politics and pleasure, oddly. Okay. Um, cool. So I'd love to hear your answer to that. So how has um, how's the internet affected like politics? Um, God. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think, um, yeah, I think it's the, the ability to kind of spread disinformation um, really flourishes when you're kicking the wrong things off of the internet. Um, so if you're, if you're kicking sex, sex educators off, if you're kicking pleasure activists off, um, if you're not getting people real sex education outside of the internet, then um, you have disinformation fills in that, that gap and says, you know, like, abstinence only is the way to solve you know, like sexual abuse. Um, so I think that kind of is an analog for politics because like if you're, if you're not allowed to talk about like abortion online, which is something that is happening actively um, because it falls into that realm of sex education, um, then people who want to kind of advocate, you know, for forced birth rise up and fill in that gap. Um, so yeah, it kind of... I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> That's such a big question. Again, I want to talk to you about what you're working on, too. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we're going to... This is maybe the last question because we have, like, two minutes left. Um, but go for it. And then I, I can also kind of briefly address this in the app, too. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, you've spoken lots today about kind of sex education. I was wondering if you kind of knew the history of when sex education became uh, age-appropriate. I'm from the UK, and it seems like anything below 13 no sex education is appropriate. Yeah. But I was wondering if you knew what the history of that was. I don't really specifically know the history. Um, I know very recently people are kind of um, pushing for more like age appropriate sex education, even for young, because I think it was like you didn't learn about it until middle school because people were like, oh, that's when people, kids are ready. Um, but even talking about like, is it okay to give you a hug? I think can fall into the realm of like consent education. And I think that's something that people are, um, working on now, you know, calling body parts what they are, um, giving kids that vocabulary, giving them the ability to say no, I think can start really, really young. Um, so yeah, I don't, I actually am now curious where that, when sex education in the U.S. started. Um, I'm sure it's very different from how they have built it up in the U.K., but um, yeah, that's a really good question. A lot of people, some people sent me um, questions in the app, um, if you want to drop your um, email or anything in, in with the app questions, I think it might let you do that, um, and I can answer them later. But I think I'm about to be uh, hooked off of the stage, so I need to wrap it up. But I'm doing a book signing right after this next door, um, and we can keep talking then as well. Yeah. Thank you all for coming so much.